Amen and good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Tyrell. I'm one of the elders here at Joy. It's good to be with you, worshiping with you this morning, um, worshiping our holy God, who is also a merciful Heavenly Father. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those are the opening words of a uh, famous novel. Does anybody know what novel that is? A Tale of Two Cities. Have you ever read A Tale of Two Cities? It's a wonderful book. A lot of gospel themes in A Tale of Two Cities. Today, we complete our journey through the book of Nehemiah, and those words are an apt description of what we encounter. An amazing religious high and a startling fall from grace. Nehemiah has loved his people and led his people. He has modeled faith in the Lord, courage, steadfastness, boldness, conviction, repentance, generosity, and love. Under his watch, the wall of Jerusalem has been, re- uh, has been rebuilt. Jerusalem itself has been repopulated and right worship has been restored. This morning we conclude the book with two starkly contrasting images. The amazing joy at the dedication of the wall and the service at the temple and the stunning return to Israel's former sins. Nehemiah concludes with an opportunity to marvel at God's mercy and power, admire Nehemiah's never-ending commitment to the purity of his people as long as he lives, and to face the reality that Nehemiah's best efforts will not be enough to fix the biggest problems of the people. This morning's sermon comes from Chapter 12, verse 27 through 1331. We're going to read a decent chunk of this passage uh, in your Bibles. If you're using the Bibles in the chairs, it's on page 408. I would encourage you to follow along. I hope you've read the passage throughout the week. Uh, It is helpful to me, and I'm, I'm sure also helpful to you to do that in advance. I have three points to my sermon this morning, and you're going to love them. That's ah, bold. <laughs> Point number one, on that day. Point number two, on that day. And point number three, on that day. You got it? Those are my three points this morning. I'm going to read starting in 1227. I'm going to read 27 to 30, and then I'm going to skip over to verse 43, and then read the rest of the passage. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. 
Skipping over to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by, the commandment, by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the, priests, the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for His service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading winepresses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. 
Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for my good. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need your Holy Spirit to give us insight and understanding, and I pray that my words would be faithful to your word. And that we would see in this word the inability of humanity to produce change in itself. The need for you to work in our hearts. To change our hearts. And we thank you, God, that you are the, the one who gives us hearts that actually can rejoice in you. We pray for your blessing on this time. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So our first on that day uh, is mentioned in 1244. I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open uh, so that you can follow along. The first on that day is 1244, and it's even referenced in 1243. The phrase on that day can literally mean on the same day. And you might say, that doesn't seem worth saying. But it is worth saying, and you'll, we'll get to it in a few minutes. And we have the on that day, literally on that day, 
in the end of chapter 12. And the theme of that day was joy, rejoicing. The people gather from all around for the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem and the service at the temple. Listen to the words. If you read through the end of 12 throughout the week, used to describe the atmosphere in the end of chapter 12. Words like celebrate, thanksgiving, gladness, singing, gave thanks is mentioned twice, sang, rejoiced with great joy, rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The picture that's being painted in this passage is that they are gathering at the walls. They have the the city of Jerusalem surrounded with choirs. And these choirs are going to march and converge upon the temple, rejoicing. Look what God has done. The wall has been built. It actually says in the passage that people are literally standing on the wall rejoicing and leading the rejoicing and choirs are singing the picture that i had in my mind uh kids we're adults how many of you have seen uh the grinch who stole christmas ever seen that one so the grinch he steals all their presents right expecting that what he's going to hear the next morning is the weeping and the sadness of the town of whoville and when he, when he gets up the next morning, what does he hear? Singing. They've got the town surrounded and they're rejoicing and their singing hits his ears. And that's what we have here. The joy of Jerusalem is heard far away. The singing of these choirs as they're celebrating the work that God has done, what seemed impossible to them. Not long before this, He has done it. And in their joy, there's a commitment to proper worship. We see in verse 30 of chapter 12, the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people. They purified the gates. They purified the wall. There's this commitment to, we're we're going to do this the right way. We want to honor the God who has done what seemed to be impossible. We see in in verses 44 to 47, they're making provisions for the future of worship so that proper worship will continue. Their leaders direct them. We see mentions of places like uh, in, uh, let's say, from verses 31 to 42, we see mentions of places like the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate. The broad wall, the tower of the ovens, the fish gate, the sheep gate, etc. Do you remember those who've been here for the weeks of, of Nehemiah? Did we hear those gates mentioned anywhere else? Do you remember that? Yeah, they're mentioned in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 when Nehemiah first gets to Jerusalem and he goes to inspect the walls and he goes and he sees the disrepair that these walls are in. These are the gates that are mentioned. And now they're saying this is where they're coming from to rejoice because those gates are repaired. Those walls are repaired. They are not in disrepair. And God had made them rejoice with great joy. Everyone rejoiced together. Their joy was a community joy. We've talked about this theme throughout Nehemiah. The failure of Israel was a community failure. 
Their punishment was a community punishment. Their work to rebuild was a community work. Their repentance was a community repentance. Their covenant last week was a community covenant. And their joy was a community joy. And why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't it be? If you had told an Israelite a few months before that, listen, this is all going to be rebuilt. It's going to be great. They would have said that's impossible. Impossible. There was still work to do for sure, but the city of God was restored. Salvation had come. God had been so merciful to them and so mighty. For the believer in Christ, as we come to worship each week, we can know the joy of the Lord as well. Even more fully, right? We can sing with joy even more fully than they did on that day. Ezra said in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. As we gather, we do not come together as those who are free from troubles, right? They're gathering on the, at the end of chapter 12, and they're not saying like, it's all fixed, we're never going to have troubles again. They're rejoicing in the power of the Lord to do the unthinkable, the impossible. As we gather Sunday and Sunday out, we come with those who are, as those who are at times heavy laden. Does that mean that we can have no joy? We can know joy in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our trials. We gather as those who can celebrate the Lord's great work of saving us, of changing us, of giving us a hope that sustains us in times of trial and in times of ease. We can express joy because the Lord is good and He has made us His people. We rejoice and hope together because He has purchased a people for Himself. The service at the temple takes place according to the command of David and according to the, the work of Solomon. It's interesting that the story shifts, right, from return to exile, from exile to worship, proper worship at the temple. And so the, the, the uh, scene gazes, or the gaze backwards shifts from Moses to David. Okay, so, so now David seems to be the focal point of this passage. David, the one who had it in his heart to build the temple, though it was not accomplished under his watch. Solomon built the temple. And the people of Israel still had the hope of a son of David who was yet to come, who would make everything right fully and finally. Maybe Nehemiah would be that son of David. Chapter 12 concludes with songs of praise and proper worship and the statement that as long as Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were around, everything was done the right way. When they were there, proper worship took place. This is a wonderful... The end of chapter 12 is a great high point to end the book of Nehemiah on. Unfortunately, the book of Nehemiah doesn't end there. Which brings us 
to 13.1 and our second on that day. The phrase on that day can also mean something like at that time or in those days. Something more general. And it has to be so with our reading of on that day in 13.1. Can we take a couple seconds to go through some context work just so we're understanding what's happening here? Okay, contrast the spiritual high of 1244 or 43 on that day. What's happening with the supremely disappointing on that day of chapter 13? As you read, it seems like it just flows chronologically, right? Like, oh, 13.1 is just happening at the same time. That's not true. It can't be. And I'm going to show you two context clues that help us understand why. In verse 4... We have this phrase, now before this, in reference to what was said in verses 1 through 3. Okay? So everything that happens in verses 4 through 29 came before they read from the book of Moses again. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that? We also see in verse 6, that the troubles of verses 4 through 29 took place when? In the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. Does anybody, real, real quick trivia, do you remember what year Nehemiah came to Jerusalem? The 20th year of Artaxerxes. So this is 12 years later. Okay? You following me? I don't want you to get lost in the weeds, but I do want you to see that Nehemiah is referencing something that happened well after his first visit. Okay, He says he took leave and he went back to Artaxerxes. Do you notice also that he called him Artaxerxes the king of Babylon and not the king of Persia? Interesting. Not uncommon though, because they, they would use that term to say, talk about lands that they overtook. So Artaxerxes overtook Babylon. So anyway... I'm trying not to get us lost in the weeds, but I think it's important for us to see what's happening. You could almost read chapter 13 as if verses 1 through 3 and 30 and 31 are the conclusion, with verses 4 through 29 as a parenthetical description of what took place while Nehemiah was away. You with me? Does that make sense? Some of you are shaking your heads. So on that day here is more broadly during my time as governor. On that day here is a picture of a fallen people. The end of chapter 12 fills us with such hope and such joy. And chapter 13 leads us to say, what is wrong with these people? Nehemiah comes back to find that Eliashib the priest, the guy in charge of the chambers of God's house, has stopped filling them with offerings. And what has he done? He made an apartment for Tobiah. Tobiah, do you remember back in chapter 6? I said, we're not done hearing from Tobiah. He's not done being a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. You know, he's got all these people who made pledges to him. Well, he's living in the temple. In the beginning of 13, it says, It was found written in in the book of Moses that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. 
Do you remember what Tobiah's ethnic heritage is? Ammonite. Not only has he entered the assembly, he's living in the temple. Nehemiah also finds that the Levites and the singers have not been getting paid. So they'd all gone back to their fields and started to try and earn a living for themselves again. The house of God was forsaken again. He also finds people working on the Sabbath, selling things, treading wine presses, buying and selling, doing business. And, and it gives you the exclamation of, even in Jerusalem. It's supposed to be the center of worship on the Sabbath. Nope. Center of commerce. He also finds that many of the Jewish men had again married worshipers of foreign gods. That's the issue with foreigners. I've said it a number of times over and over in this series. Just to make it clear, I'll say it one more time. Worshippers of foreign gods is the issue. These Jewish men had married worshipers of foreign gods and had children who were speaking the languages of the nations around them but could not speak the language of Judah. That gives you the, the insight that, that Nehemiah had probably been away for at least a couple years, right? They're speaking the languages of the nations around them but don't know their own language. He also finds that one of the grandsons, grandsons of Eliashib, the high priest, is married to who? He's the son-in-law of who? Samballot. Have we heard from him before? He has been a thorn in Israel's side. These people have gone back to everything. Everything Israel repented of, everything Israel covenanted never to do again in chapters 9 and 10, they went back to it. It's terribly sad. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Proverbs 26.11 says. What is wrong with these people? Why can't they get it right? Why can't they just keep pleasing God? What do you think? Why can't they just get it right? Well, there's a, there's a heart-level problem that we're going to have to address in a couple minutes. But I was intrigued. They seem to keep falling in the same ways, right? It keeps being highlighted. They keep falling in the same ways. And if you read through the Old Testament, it's not just the book of Nehemiah. They seem to keep falling in the same ways over and over and over historically. And I think it can be summed up in a simple statement. They wanted to be just like everyone else. Israel was called to be the people of God, set apart, a holy nation. They were to be the light of the world, the city on a hill. The prosperity of Jerusalem and the victories of Israel were meant to point the world to the reality that the God of Israel is the one true God. That hope and salvation are found in Him alone. That there are no other gods. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Israel was supposed to be the banner that flew over the world saying, repent of your idolatry and worship the one true God. 
But like Solomon, their forefather, repeatedly, the nation of Israel said that they did not want to stand out. They wanted to blend in. They wanted to be like everyone around them. Man, oh man, how we can understand that. It's easier to just be like everybody else. Love what they love. Prioritize what they prioritize. Value what they value. Get their applause. Being God's people is an amazing blessing. And yet, even as we read the, pa- read the passage earlier, even as Michelle read earlier in 1 Peter, it puts us in the position, being God's people, of exiles and f- foreigners and distinct in this world. It often puts us at odds with the values and priorities of those around us. And the easiest thing to do is just keep our mouths shut and try to fit in. And to think that it's better that way. Swallow everything the world has to offer us with no regard for the commands of God which are for our good. This is the essence of sin and people have been doing it since the garden. I just just want to be like the world. I don't want to stand out. It's easier to fit in than to stand out. But the Lord calls His people a set-apart people. Where have you compromised your faith to fit in, to look good in the eyes of the world? You can imagine being an Israelite in that time, right? Like, the merchants are coming on the Sabbath and they're like, you're not going to buy our stuff on the Sabbath? Why? Because your God says not to? Right? Attracted to a foreign woman who worships another God and saying like, come on, what's the big deal? Maybe I'll even make her worship my God. I'd rather just be like everybody else. Where have you resisted? Standing out for Christ because you like fitting in more. Where have you resisted? Maybe some of you are resisting even trusting in Christ for salvation because you know that that could mean standing out. People asking you about your faith. Saying no to certain things that the world says yes to. Can you imagine Nehemiah's dismay at this scene? what he comes back to. He's been away for a couple years and this is what he comes back to. All of his efforts, all of his prayers, all of his sacrifice and this is what he gets. I'm sure that some of you can resonate with that too, right? You ever felt that feeling? All that I do, all that I put into this and this is what I get. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. To to Nehemiah's credit, he doesn't take this sitting down, does he? This is uh, chapter 13 is like, I I mean, even as I read it to you, it's like, this guy, it's like an action movie, right? Nehemiah, he comes back to Jerusalem and he's like, oh, okay, that's how it's going to be? Then we're going to take care of some business, right? 
And the picture we're, we're meant to see, it's, it's a foreshadowing for sure of one who is going to come and flip over the temple tables, right? Who's going to, it's going to be said, zeal for my father's house will consume me of Jesus. And Nehemiah here is a picture of that. He goes to the chamber. Tobiah's living there. What's he do with Tobiah's furniture? Psst. Throws it out. Put the offerings back in here. He gets the leaders together and he says, what is going on here? Why is the house of God forsaken? Where are the singers? Where are the Levites? Brings them back. Note again that, ne that Nehemiah first goes to the leaders. Over and over in chapter 13. He goes to the leaders. and says, what are you doing? What have you done? What have you allowed? He commands the shutting of the doors of the gates at night before the Sabbath so that merchants cannot come in. And when merchants wait outside those gates, what does it say he does? He threatens to lay hands on them. You picture Nehemiah. He's by himself just walking out there like, I don't mind fighting every single one of you if I have to. He confronted the men who had intermarried and he gently encouraged them to try to do better next time. No. I, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Nehemiah was not messing around. Sometimes you got to get violent with sin. Intolerant of sin. Do whatever it takes. Make war. Nehemiah makes war on behalf of Israel. He makes them swear again. He's telling us, you're bringing the curse right back down on us. Makes them swear again before God that they would not carry this practice into the next generation. He chases Jehoiada away from the temple. He says, I chased him away. And he again has the people sit under the teaching of the law. And we're reminded, I don't have a ton of time for this, but we are reminded again of where Nehemiah's ultimate hope lies over and over in chapter 13. His trust is in the Lord to do a mighty work and the Lord to reward him for his labors. Four different prayers are offered in chapter 13. 13.14, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for His service. It sounds like he's saying, please, Lord, let this last. Let my work endure. You see all that I've done on your behalf. Please sustain this work. 13.22, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. This prayer seems to be saying, listen, if this doesn't hold up for them, please spare me. You see my heart. You see what I have wanted. 13.29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He leaves judgment, final judgment, in the hands of God. And then the whole book concludes with remember me, O my God, for good. He entrusts himself 
to the hand of a good God. That he would reward. That he would see. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, right? Because the Lord sees. And he knows. Nehemiah has led his people well. He has sacrificed much on their behalf. And as the book comes to a close, did you note which of his accomplishments get listed? He doesn't say, and I build a wall. He does say, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Right worship of God was always in Nehemiah's heart. And this was his main focus. This book ends with such tension. The beauty of Nehemiah's faith, life, and example. His trust in the Lord. God's remarkable accomplishments through him. And yet, we are left with a sinking feeling that Nehemiah has not solved their biggest problem. He couldn't. We are left longing for at least one more on that day. Nehemiah has paved the way for such a day, but it was not that day. But the day would come. The day when the root issue of humanity's problem is dealt with. Israel will fall again because Israel and each of us have a heart problem. Israel wanted to be like everyone else because, you know why? They were like everyone else at heart. Ours is a problem of being bent toward rebellion against God at all times. Anybody ever dealt with a defiant child? Most of you parents are like, no, I've not, actually, no, never. <laughs> Defiant children can be brought into compliance by extreme measures. Let the reader understand. <laughs> but you can even see in their compliance that they cannot wait to disobey you again. They are bent toward bucking against authority just like each of us against God's authority. Even when we know that submission to His authority brings life and joy and worship of Him, it's not enough because our hearts are corrupt. He says, come to Me and find rest for your souls. Find yourself safe within the walls of my love and my good rule and authority. Leave your pursuits of vomit and look to me. And we say, no. We half-heartedly turn and then we turn back again. He says to you, here is fullness of joy. Now and forever. And we say we can find happiness elsewhere. We see the mountaintop experience of the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 12, and we think, our hearts rejoice. Man, I would love to rejoice forever. Lasting joy. But when the Lord says it's found in Him, we bend away. We say, no. We rebel. 
I can find joy elsewhere. I can make my own joy. I can make myself happier than God can make me. At just the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Nehemiah's work was wonderful, but he was not the son of David that was most needed, ultimately needed. His work set the stage for a son of David who would come 430 years later. The son of David who would ratify a new covenant with his people by his blood. Jesus is the perfect son of David, the Messiah. His perfect life and sacrificial death are the means by which every person who is one of His is given a new heart, a heart of faith to believe that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus' work was not left incomplete by failures of people or failures of His own or the end of His life because His life was perfect, dependent entirely upon Him and because He is the perfect priest who protects the house of God by the power of His indestructible life. This Jesus, who died for our sins, was raised in victory. His it is finished means it is finished. Forgiveness is finished. Cleansing is finished. Hope offered to the needy. Finished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Nehemiah ends with hope mixed with sadness and a longing for the people to worship God rightly and forever. In Jesus, we are given hearts that love what He loves and hate what He hates. While here on this earth, that leads to a war within us. The flesh and the Spirit are opposed to one another. But we long for full healing and perfect worship. We rest in the finished work of Christ and we see glimpses of what one day will be. Gatherings like this are glimpses of what one day will be. Because there is an on that day yet to come. A glorious on that day. John says it in Revelation chapter 22 as we get ready to close. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The people of God will worship the Lord unhindered by the fetters of brokenness and pain and joy will be ours forever and ever. 
Nehemiah could not bring this about. But the Lord Jesus has done it and will do it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Yes, for the example of Nehemiah and his steadfastness and his faithfulness. But also thank you, Father, that in Nehemiah's account, we find the need for one greater than Nehemiah to come and rescue us. And we thank you that we can celebrate your rescue of us through the Lord Jesus Christ, whose work is perfect and complete and gives us the hope of a joy that will never end. We thank you and pray all this in his name. Amen.